0: Well, we're not good. There's no none good, no none so good. But uh, we're good in Christ. Okay. <laughs> well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, let's take them out. We're going to continue our verse by verse study through the book of Second Peter. We are in chapter three of Second Peter, and we're going to look at the first nine verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Stuart will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Second Peter chapter three, verses one to nine, this morning. Starting in verse 1, Peter writing, and we read, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, and both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The title of my message this morning is, Keep Looking Up. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to Be able to open your word freely, Lord, in this place and know that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us and instruct us in all things, Lord, that pertain to life and to godliness. We thank you, Lord, for this just a privilege of it is to gather together. We pray, Lord, that you would anoint our time, bless our time, move in our hearts this morning. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet. Would you especially touch their heart today, Lord, that they would see their need for you, their need for repentance, and they would turn to you this morning. And so we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever seen the prank? I think they have it on YouTube or something where they got two or three guys and they're walking down maybe a pier at the beach or something or a crowded place and, and they all kind of stop and they look and they point up. And they just stare, there's nothing there, but they're looking, all of a sudden another person comes and stops, another person stops, and then before you know they got 30, 20, 30 people, you know, staring up in the sky at nothing. At least they're looking. Now, now, when Jesus ascended into heaven after His resurrection from the dead, we know that Peter and the rest of the disciples stood there gazing up into heaven, then suddenly two men in white clothing showed up and asked them this question in Acts 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. I wonder how long they would be standing there staring up into the sky had not these two angels come along and said, hey, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, you know God had to send these messengers to get them to see that, that Jesus is going to come back. And what happened? They then returned to the upper room. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon them from heaven and they went around turning the world upside down for Jesus. They learned to wait for the coming of the Lord while at the same time working for the Lord as if there was no tomorrow. That was the heart of every disciple. That that certainly was the heart of the Apostle Peter as we will see. And that should be the heart of each one of us here this morning. See, we as a church, we have been looking for in great anticipation for Jesus Christ to return for many years now. And we've been telling people Jesus is coming back. It could be any second, any day. And I've said this many times, you know this, it could be right now. Right now. Right now. And in hope that it's right now. We've been looking for that. Now the problem is Jesus hasn't returned yet. And it's been some 2,000 years, and we're still watching, and we're still waiting. And and that kind of leads people to no longer look up. They're no longer waiting in anticipation for the Lord's return. In fact, as we get into chapter 3, Peter, he's talking about the end of the world, and he's talking about those that would be scoffing at the idea of Jesus' return. I found an interesting illustration of what it would be like if the press really believed that the end of the world was near... How they would report it? The Wall Street Journal believed the end of the world was near. They would, their, their headlines might be "Dow Jones plummets as the world ends." Maybe USA Today, being a little simpler, in their headlines would simply write, "We're dead." How about People Magazine? They would have this article: "Your favorite movie stars, what they will wear their last night." How about Rolling Stone magazine, they might have an article entitled, "Is there a rock and roll heaven?" Ladies Home Journal would include these headlines. Lose 10 pounds by Judgment Day worth a new Armageddon diet. Or this one. Golf Digest would have the article. Make your last round the best. PC Magazine would simply state it's Control-Alt-Delete for mankind. And finally, Christian Weekly would say we told you so. I might add CNN would say it's not going to happen. You know, fake news. You know, but... Fake news, fake news. Anyway, (laughs) as we look to the future, what Peter is telling us here in chapter 3 is that the closer we get, the more unbelief is going to set in. But that shouldn't change our hearts. We need to keep looking up. Don't lose uh, sight of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. See, Peter began this second letter reminding us of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And it's been a a loving uh, exhortation to diligently continue in our faith. He informed us that much of his ministry was simply to remind us of things we've already known, the basic truths of Christianity. He encouraged us to search the scriptures rather than merely accept what someone else has to say. Of course, the reason that we need to place our faith completely in the Word of God and and not on people's experience or teaching is because there's so many false teachers that are out there during Peter's time and during our time. And we spent three Sundays going through what Peter had to say about these false teachers, how they secretly brought in destructive heresies, how they denied the, the one who bought them, the deity of Jesus Christ. They were motivated by greed, and we saw a lot of that going on today. Peter described for us how judgment was sure to come, just as it did to the fallen angels, just as it did to those pre-flood, and just as it did to those who lived during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. We finished off chapter 2 looking at these false teachers, their their reputation, their retribution, their their revolting, and, and their results, that God would judge them. Well, now as we start chapter 3, Peter begins by speaking about this great topic of the coming of the Lord. And, and in so doing, he's also warning us that these false teachers were out there. And they were saying, it's not going to happen. You know, Jesus isn't coming back. Things are going to go on just the way they always happen. And so Peter sets out to stir us up to the truth and cause us once again to get us excited about the return of the Lord. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would get excited about the Lord that's returning. And so it begins, look at verses 1 and 2. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. In other words, you say, now, now listen, I've told you all about the false teachers. You're not to listen to those guys anymore. Rather, listen to the words of the prophets, Listen to the words of the apostles. We apostles who, who've actually spent time with Jesus in His presence, we know exactly what he, what He had to say. I love that Peter starts chapter three out with, he says, "Beloved." I, I mean, he truly loved Christians everywhere. In fact, Jesus said that was a, a sign of a being one of His disciples in John thirteen thirty five. By all this, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if we do love one another as we should then in that love we should be stirring up one another to love and good works, reminding each other that we are living in the last days. Remember, Peter's talking to the church. He knows how easy it is for us to to fall asleep when when, when we should be wide awake. In fact, that's the reason he says, I want to stir up your pure mind. Now you're going, I don't know if we all have pure minds. Well, actually, that word pure is, is sincere. He wants to stir up our sincere minds. He wants us to remind us of the things that really matter. That's Peter's heart. It's a, it's a word. another word for the word stir is to, to awake. Here's the idea. You know, we talk about the Lord's return, and usually every message I, I, I close at least saying something about, it. we believe we're living in the last day. Jesus is coming back. And what happens? We hear it over and over again and and so when you come to the end of a Bible study you say, Oh, you know, I say tomorrow's gonna be maybe your last day, Jesus could return at any moment and you think, Well, you know, Pastor Tom said that last week and Jesus didn't return and and, and you know, not yet and, and, and we don't really let those words sink in. Yeah, Jesus returning at MO yeah, yeah, that would be cool. We start thinking and, and, and I wouldn't have to pay off that loan that I have and, and in fact, I could probably get a new loan, right? I can get that new car that I want. I've been looking at, and in fact, I should go look at that car today. You know, I wonder what my payment would be. You know, I I could put some money into the house and sell that and get maybe a different house, and uh, then I going to buy Buy all. Oh, I got to buy groceries today, and you know? I got groceries and uh, do I have my list. What do I do with my list? Uh, oh, what do I got to do? And all of a sudden, our mind is nowhere near the Lord just re- returning, and, 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 and see what happens. We get used to the message. Because it hasn't happened yet, we get distracted with the things of this world, and we start to do what the rest of the world is doing. As we get no longer paying paying attention to what really matters, and instead we get so involved in this this life that it's the last thing we think about, instead of the first thing we should be thinking about. We're letting the world lull us to sleep spiritually to the fact that the Lord could return at any given moment. That's why God put so many warnings and exhortations in Scripture about falling asleep spiritually because it seems to indicate that we have that problem. Romans 13 11, writing in light of the Lord's coming, Paul said this, And do this knowing the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. See, prophetic teaching must not lull us to sleep, rather must awaken us to live godly lives and to seek to win the lost. So Peter sees the need for reminding them and us of this essential truth that Jesus is going to return. That's why he said, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. I know you know these things, but I want to remind you of them wants to make sure you're established in the present truth. Jesus is coming soon. And for that reason, Peter says this. Look at verse 2 again. He says, We need to be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all spoke of the Lord's return to this earth. Peter adds, We as apostles did as well. In fact, that's the central message of the Scriptures. 1,845 times the Bible mentions the second coming of the Messiah. 318 times in the New Testament, one in every 30 verses speaks of the second coming and the end of the age. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament deal with this issue. 17 out of the 38 books in the Old Testament are given to this subject entirely. In fact, the Lord inspired that so much would be written about this because He wants it on the forefronts of our minds. And you don't, just don't take my word on it. Listen to what Jesus said. Take his word. He said this in John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. First mention of the rapture of the church right there. The Lord says, I'm leaving I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Then I'm going to come back again, and receive you to myself. That where I am, you can be also. You see, we need to understand that there's three aspects uh, of the Lord's coming back to this earth, or coming to this earth rather. The first uh, one that Jesus first came into this earth as a lamb uh, to be sacrificed for our sins, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. The second, uh, Jesus will return in the clouds, and the rapture of the churches were caught up to be with the Lord. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, John 14, as we just read. Then the third coming, uh, Jesus returns to the earth, is what's called his second coming. It's not the third coming, it's the second coming. He comes as a lion, he comes in judgment, and we as Christians will return with him. And again, the early church lived as though the Lord could return at any moment. One commentator wrote this, They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but a clearing in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker, but the upper taker. I like that, the upper taker. I like that. Again, that's the reason why the early church was so effective. They knew that the Lord could return at any moment, and so Peter wants to remind them and us as we get closer. There's going to be scoffers, those mocking that idea. If you're taking notes, Peter points out three things that these scoffers will deny when it comes to the Lord's return. Number one, they'll deny the Lord's return. Number two, they'll deny the history of the world. And number three, they'll deny the judgment that is coming. Number one, they deny the Lord's return. Look at verse three. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. See, Peter knew that his time on earth was short. He knew that that the false teachers would come in and deny the return of Jesus Christ. They would deny the rapture of the church. And so he gives us this warning. Scoffers will come in the last days. The word scoffers means to mock, to ridicule, to make fun of, to smear at. Peter says they're going to be walking according to their own lust. In other words, they're going to be living to please their flesh. So they're going to mock the Lord's return because the message really doesn't fit into their lifestyle. They want to live for the moment, not want to think of any consequences for their actions. Are we not seeing that same thing today? People, they don't want to hear about God or Jesus returning because they think if they deny it, then they won't be held accountable for their life. It's like a young child who who covers his eyes and thinks, just because he can't see you, you can't see them. You know, oh, you're not there, you can't see me. Now, now, it shouldn't surprise us that they act this way because they're non-believers. They're just acting the way non-believers should act. But what should surprise us is that the church is no longer looking for the second coming of the Lord. Pastors today, leaders who refuse to even teach or talk about it. One pastor at a pastor's conference told a room full of pastors, stop beating the drum on biblical prophecy and end times. We're chasing all the young people away from the church. I'm sorry, you're wrong. Obviously, they don't remember that many young people came to Christ in the early 70s in what is known as the Jesus moment because they believed that Jesus Christ was coming back at any moment. I was there. There was such an excitement in, in the late 70s and early 80s about the Lord's return. It was a good thing. You know, drive down the road and see the bumper stickers that, that said Maranatha or the, the Lord is coming. You know, I had the, the rainbow bumper sticker that says Jesus is coming, you know, on both sides of my truck. Very 70s. We don't see bumper stickers like that anymore. I saw a recent bumper sticker that I think really sums up our, our culture today. It says Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> so that's the problem. And the reason we don't see an excitement for the return of the Lord today is because I believe the Lord didn't come back in 1970. He didn't come back in 1980. And as a result, many professing Christians began to lose sight of the Lord even to the point of compromise in their own lives and began to get carnal and they began to focus on the here and now and for some they slowly began to walk away from the Lord and carnality and compromise and, and sin entered their life and now produced a hardness of their heart when it comes to the Lord's return. Now, they may not verbalize their scoffing, scoffing, but but they think it. Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. They scoff inwardly, and it affects them the way in which they're living. Their passion is gone. And they get more worldly, year after year, living just to please themselves. I think we all know people like that. People who have walked away from Christ, and now they spend most of their time as workaholics, putting more emphasis on making the almighty dollar rather than pleasing the almighty God and Savior. Listen, here's a way to avoid your heart becoming hard like that. Instead of focusing on the coming of the Lord, we need to focus on the Lord who is coming. Let me say that again. Instead of focusing on the coming of the Lord, we need to focus on the Lord who is coming. There's a big difference. The person who, who's focused on the coming of the Lord says, uh, it, uh, you know, it, it's getting closer. I better get my life right. I better get busy. But the person who's focused on the Lord who is coming says, oh, he is so awesome. I can't wait for him to get here. He's so wonderful. I want to live for him. I want to please him and serve him and sing to him songs about him. I want to tell others about him. But again, the sad thing is that many pulpits across America are seeking to explain away this basic truth of the word of God. They say, look at verse 4, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What are they saying? They're saying that we live in a closed, naturalistic system. And events just move along steadily without any kind of cataclysmic event or punctuated event from heaven. That kind of belief system is known as uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism teaches that things are moving steadily and slowly without any big changes because they've always been this way then they're always going to be this way. It's like saying, well, Jesus isn't coming back because he never really did come back. Or it's like saying, well, I'll I'll never die because I've never died. Listen, just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean it won't happen. So Peter's saying the scoffers in the last days will deny the return of Jesus Christ. and, And we know the prophecy is being fulfilled even to this very day because all you've got to do is turn on the TV and, and you hear the scoffing that's taking place. So number one, these false teachers, they, they deny the Lord's return. Number two, they deny the history of the world. Look at verse 5. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water. So, so what he's saying is scoffers deliberately and willingly deny the history of the world. They willingly forget that the Lord spoke the world into existence and He can easily just speak it out of existence. But don't we see that today as well? The Big Bang Theory, the the push of evolution in, in our public school systems denies the biblical history of our world. Darwin denied the biblical history of the world. Bill Nye the Science Guy denies the biblical history of the world. I like the story about Sir Isaac Newton who had a friend that was an atheist friend did not believe God, but preferred to take the position that the universe just happened. One day, when this friend was visiting, Mr. Newton showed him a model of the solar system. The sun, the planets, and the moons were all in place. The sizes of the spheres were in proportion, and the planets and the satellites revolved around the sun and and at their relative speeds. And the, the friend admired the model. It's intriguing, he said. Who made it? Nobody, said Newton. It just happened. See, Peter's words have dramatically demonstrated how different the Christian's biblical worldview is from the perspective of the unbeliever's worldview today. They choose to only believe what they want to believe. Peter saying that they willfully mock the Word of God because it was by the Word of God that the world began. I mean, think about this. In the seven days of creation, every day began with the spoken Word of God. Each day began with the statement, and God sent When God spoke, he spoke creation into existence. When God spoke, he transformed the chaotic mass of land and water into a world that that sustains life. Now, it's the same word of God which reversed the process of creation at the flood so that the land was covered with water, destroying all life, except those who were saved on the ark. But he said, these scoffers, they deny that as well, Peter says. And that's our third point. They deny the judgment that is coming. Look at verses 6 and 7. Peter says they willfully forget verse 6 by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. We'll look at that at the end of verse 7 in more detail next time together. But let me say this Noah's flood was incredibly important an incredibly important event in history. It changed the entire appearance of the earth but more than that it was a sign of God's judgment against wickedness. So for these these scoffers, these false teachers, to willfully deny the flood, they're denying the judgment of God. Well, God's not going to judge, you know. Now again, it doesn't make it so. Judgment is coming. Peter says it just proves that they, they choose to rather live a lie rather than the truth. Because if they acknowledge the flood, then they have to acknowledge that, that God judges wickedness. That's why they willfully deny it. What a hopeless state they were in. Again, verse 5 says, they willfully forget, they purposely choose not to believe. Another way of looking at it, Peter's saying they're ignorant of their ignorance. Now this may sound bad, but let me put it a different way. There are actually those that can be so stupid that they don't know that they're stupid. Let me give you an illustration that might not sound so rude. You may have heard the phrase, they are dumb as an ox being led to the slaughter." It's picture, you know, is a row of oxen and they're making their way up up the path where there's a butcher at the end ready to take off their heads, uh, the cattle. Now, ox are pretty dumb animals, so dumb in fact that as he looks ahead and sees a few of his friends losing their heads, he just keeps on walking, doesn't stop and go. I'm going to go the other way. Doesn't say, hold on a minute, you know, I'm not going to stand this this path. No, he sees, you know, heifer Hank and Elsie and sees them lose their head and they just keep on going. They don't turn around. But but that oxen has no idea what's happening. In fact, you may see the one before him loses his head and the next one follows and then he just puts his neck right there on the line. That's pretty dumb. Listen, that is a condition of those that are scoffing at the Lord's return, scoffing at the judgment of God. They're so ignorant, they don't even know that they're ignorant. Here's one thing that, that kind of fits in, in all of this. It's like the homosexual community hijacking the rainbow as their logo, as their flag. You know, the rainbow was a sign that God would not judge the world again by water. But next time, judgment is reserved for fire. But they don't want to recognize that. It's like an ostrich who buries his head in the sand. So instead, they deny the Lord's return. They deny the history of the world. And they deny the judgment that is coming. And you want to say, get your head out of the sand. Look where you're heading. But the problem is they don't want to see it. Paul takes it a step further. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. See, unless a person is born again by the Spirit of God, there is blindness upon them. They, they need the Spirit of God to open their eyes to understand the things of the Spirit. The bottom line with these false teachers is that it was unbelief. They were not only ignorant of spiritual truth, but they, it was voluntary ignorance. And I've shared this before, you know. They knew the facts, but they were refusing to accept them. I think that's one of the worst things that are out there. To know the truth and turn from it is to turn from the love and mercy and peace of God. For For the Christian who knows the truth and embraces the truth, we can trust in the truth. We can trust in the facts of God. Let me give you six facts about God that we as believers can trust. The first fact is we serve an awesome God. We serve a supreme being. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's amazing. That's a God we serve. That's a fact. Number two, we have a solid fact that Jesus is God. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1-14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have that as a fact. Jesus is God. We have the solid fact that our Bible has been divinely inspired 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have the fact in which we will celebrate this morning as we gather around the Lord's table that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians fifteen three, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That's a fact. Number five. All who receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior are children of God. John 1.12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. And finally, number six, we have the fact that Jesus is coming back. We have His Word on it. Jesus said in Revelation twenty two twelve 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to His work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We can go on and on, fact after fact that is found in God's Word that opens our heart to, uh, of every believer, to the glories of the great God that we serve. That's what, that's awesome. And Peter says though that there there are those that are willfully ignorant that they don't want the facts, that rather believe the lie. I read a story from an agnostic editor of a publication called the American Mercury. His name was H. L. Menken, and he died as an unbeliever. At his funeral, funeral, following his request, there was no song, no hymns, no speeches, no eulogy, because during his lifetime, Mencken admitted that he might be wrong about his views about God and the immortality of his soul, but he said this. He said, if I'm wrong, I will square myself when confronted in the afterlife by the apostle with a simple apology. Gentlemen, I was wrong. Listen, he knows better now. That's not going to hold up. It's not as simple as that. After death, it's entirely too late to repent, or as he puts it, to square himself if he's wrong. Five minutes, I'd say 30 seconds after death, every unsaved, every agnostic, every person who failed to receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ will want to repent right then and there to seek to escape the torment in which he finds himself, but it'll be too late. Listen, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to turn to God. Ignorance and unbelief are not good enough excuses to keep you out of hell. Peter says, just as the world was destroyed in the days of Noah, so it will be destroyed again by fire, whether you believe it or not. So, how much time do we have left? When is Jesus coming back? I will tell you exactly when Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back at just the right time. At just the right time. Something we need to know about God. He's always right on time. God is never late, nor is He ever early. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us He has made everything beautiful in His time. We don't know when Jesus could return. Because Jesus Himself said, no man knows the day or the hour. But we surely know that it could be any day, any hour now. How do I know? Well, look at verse 8. Peter says, But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Reminds me of the story of a little boy who was taking it easy, laying on the grass, looking up at the clouds. He's identifying the shapes when he decided to talk to God. God, he said, how long is a million years? God answered, in my time frame, it's about a minute. The boy asked, God, how much is a million dollars? God answers to me, it's a penny. Then the, then the boy asked, well, God, can I have a penny? God said, sure, give me a minute. <laughs> Get it, million dollars, penny, all that. Listen, our God transcends time as we know it. We're told in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Now we know, we've learned that, that light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. And since God is light, that means he's outside of our time continuum. You may have heard this analogy before. Take uh, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. If you park yourself in a really good spot, you can see that parade as it happens, as it goes by in front of you. Makes a turn to the corner. You see the big, you know, snoopy balloon going by you or whatever and, and, uh, and, as it happens. But if you stay home... And, and watch a parade on TV, the perspective is from the blimp camera, and you can see the whole thing from one shot from beginning to the end. This is the same way that God sees things. He sees things from the beginning and the end. It's interesting that Einstein developed in this theory of relativity that it's been proven since, uh, through, through satellite studies that if you could jump on a beam of light traveling at 186 miles per second, and go on a journey to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, it would take you four and a half years to get there traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. So let's suppose you did that. Traveled there and back on a beam of light. You've been gone for a total of nine years. It took you four and a half years to get there and four and a half years to get back. What's interesting is what has taken place while you were gone. You were gone only nine years traveling at the speed of light, but when you get back to Springfield, it doesn't quite look the same. Because according to Earth's time, you've been gone a whopping 6,000 years. This was Einstein's theory. I don't fully understand how it works, but, but it's been proven. And I might add that light travels much faster than sound. That's why you say things now to your teenagers it won't reach them until they're in their 40s. But, but, but you know, we know that, that that time slows down the faster that you travel. So that if you pass the speed of light, time will stop. It'll cease to move. So it's intriguing to me that, that John describes the Lord in this way, that God is light. He's not traveling at the speed of light. He is light. So since he is light, then we're talking that God has his own timetable. So when Jesus says in Revelation 20 to 20, surely I'm coming quickly, you know it's quick, even though it's been 2,000 years since, since he said that, it, it's nothing to the Lord. Jesus is coming. Keep looking up. You may ask, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Well, let's close with verse 9. I'll enter in time of communion. Peter says, look at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thus, the reason Jesus has not yet come back, because the Lord wants to save more people. I know we look around in our society and we grow impatient because we see the wickedness. And we think, Lord, come quickly, put an end to all of this. And we, like James and John, say to the Lord, should we call fire down from heaven, Lord? Let's 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 toast them, Lord. But we forget what Jesus said to James and John in response to that. Jesus, in, in Luke 9, 55 and 56, turned and rebuked them and said, you, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. I think that says it all. As we look around, we've grown patient, but as he looks around, he sees one more person that needs to get saved. I mean, think about this. The Lord could have come back in 1970 when we had all our Maranatha bumper stickers, you know, on there and, 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 and the Jesus room, but he didn't. Let me ask you this. Is there anybody here that was a Christian before 1970? Raise your hand. Just, just a few. So if he came back in 1970, we wouldn't be here, you know, okay. Let us take it up a little bit further, you know. How about 1988? Anybody 90 got saved in 1988? A, a few more hands gone up, you know. But how many of us would have been lost had Jesus come back in 1988? See, God waited for the rest of you to come to faith in Christ. Perhaps He's still waiting for you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and, and today the Lord is touching your heart. Maybe you're the last one that's going to get saved before the rapture of the church. And I would say, would you come on already? We want to get out of here. We're waiting for you. Get saved. Come to Christ. In fact, if you are saved, you know how we can hasten the day of the Lord? By sharing our faith. By sharing our faith. Seriously, it's God's heart to save. His method of salvation is to use you and me. To use all of us. Listen, folks, time is short. The gospel message is not meant to be whispered in a corner but shouted from a housetop. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel. Don't be embarrassed by it, by its simplicity. Don't add to it or take away from it. Just proclaim it. Jesus Christ came to this earth to save sinners. He died upon the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day and He's coming back very soon to take us home to be with Him. If You put your faith and trust in Him, you're going to go. He's coming for you. That's the message we have. May God grant us, by His Holy Spirit, the boldness to share this hope that we have. Jesus is coming soon. Maranatha, keep looking up. I would love to see. It's just an excitement. Maybe I'll get some bumper stickers printed up and bring them to the church that says, Maranatha, you know, we'll plaster them all over your cars while you're here in church. And so, uh, <laughs> Well, we're going to close. We're going to enter in time of communion. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, That as we partake of the bread and juice, it's a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus who died for us. But he says this in in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Notice the last part. Till he comes. I mean, wouldn't it be great if this was the last time that we celebrated communion together? that, That just as we finish partaking, the Lord comes back. See, every time we we spend in communion together, we're just one step closer to that day, one step closer to the Lord's return as we continue to proclaim what Jesus has done for us, His death upon the cross. We're going to keep doing it until He returns for us. That's why communion is so special for us as believers. It's a time believers gather together to remember the great gift that has been given to us. And if you're not a believer this morning, then you have no desire to be a believer, I would ask as we pass out the elements of the, the bread and the, and the juice, that you just let it pass by you because the Bible speaks about a judgment that comes upon you if you're not a believer and you partake of these things unworthily. My prayer is that if you're not a believer this morning, that you give your life to Jesus Christ, that you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner, I repent of my sin, I give my life to you and you fully surrender your heart to him and then partake with us. That's a blessing that you'd find this morning that God would come that, then come back for you to take, him, take you to be with Him. And so as we gather as believers, I encourage us to examine our hearts, make sure we're in the right place with the Lord, make sure we're, we're, we're looking for the Lord's return, make sure there's no sin in our lives that's going to hinder our fellowship with God, make sure we're right with God, and then celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to gather, Lord, and to remember the night in which you were betrayed. Lord, how you took the bread and you took the juice and you said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Do this and remember to me. This is the cup, the cup of my blood, which will be shed for you and for all mankind. So their sins may be forgiven. Lord, help us to, to take these, these words to heart, Lord. That's what we're celebrating this morning, the, the sacrifice that you made upon the cross. Not that we're making the sacrifice again. Lord, we're celebrating what you've already accomplished. That you died once and for all for all of our sins. Past, present, and future. We praise you for that. Lord, examine our hearts. If there's any here, Lord, that is yet to fully surrender their hearts and life to you, I pray, Lord, that they would do so right now as we sit here. Waiting on you to move in our hearts. Lord, as we say to Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their life to you, I pray that you touch their hearts now. While their heads are bound, their eyes are closed, is there anyone here? You want to give your life to Jesus Christ. You want to be born again this morning. You want to know if Jesus came back that he would come back for you and you'd be with him. If that's your desire, would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just you uh, asking Jesus to forgive you and come into your life this morning. Just raise your hand so I could pray for you. Anybody at all? Lord, thank you again for this time as believers that we can celebrate what you've done for us. We worship you. We we magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.